Hey everyone, this is Across the Aisle. Sometimes we crowd it, sometimes we cross it. I'm Zach. I'm Adam. And I'm Kason. Hello. Today on Across the Aisle, we're going to discuss Kratom. We're going to talk about what Kratom is the effects of Kratom, the history of its use, and the possibility of the future prohibition, the legality of Kratom in the USA, and a little bit across the world. What is Kratom? Kratom is a tea, or, well, really, Kratom is a leaf uh, from a tree related to the coffee plant, Mitragena speciosa. It has a history of use for hundreds, if not thousands of years in Southeast Asia. It is indigenous in places like Thailand, Myanmar, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia. It's a traditional medicine as well as uh, a recreational drug, for lack of better words, in its traditional homelands. Uh, so Kratom is really unique because it acts in a number of different ways. It triggers opioid receptors in the brain, the mu opioid receptors, I believe, and it's a serotonin antagonist. It acts in similar ways to caffeine, to opiates, and to nicotine. Um, depending on the maturity of the plant, it produces slightly different effects. The younger the plant seems to be the more energizing, and then the older the plant seems to be the more sedating, also coming along with more of the pain-relieving effects. Um, Kratom is mildly addictive. Um, the evidence seems to suggest that it's about as addictive as a caffeine, as coffee is, um, with very mild withdrawal symptoms. Um, I think my personal experience is a lot of that addictive quality seems to be more mental rather than physical, but we'll get into that later. Well, um, I had uh, some a little information about the um, the history of Kratom. We're going to start off um, talking about the history of it. And um, it originated in Thailand, and uh, through um, just various different, um, like a, a more economic and uh, uh, political turmoil, it ended up being essentially illegal in its in its homeland. Which is kind of interesting to me, considering you know the widespread uses it was really used in, in Thailand for over three thousand years, um, and now it's uh, illegal. And it's one of the main things that opponents of kratom like to bring up that it's illegal in Thailand. But from the information that I was seeing, is that it's like barely enforced. Right. Like, it's basically almost like kind of like pot in Jamaica. Where like it's illegal, people don't really know it's illegal because it's it's not really that enforced. Yeah, I um I saw it became illegal in 1943 under um a, a dictatorship, uh, and it was seen as harming the opium trade. So the opium trade was largely connected to the Chinese, and in this time Thailand was putting all these sanctions or not sanctions um. They were enforcing a lot of rules against Chinese businesses um, that, let's say, they were a little bit selective about it, maybe not enforcing it for uh, those same rules for um, the businesses of other people that weren't Chinese. And 
so the with the opium going like crazy i mean the opium boom was everywhere and the thai the thai government was making a lot of money off of it and as people are getting addicted to opium the kratom plant which had been used mostly by poor workers uh farm workers and stuff as a stimulant to stay awake and to dull the pain while they're doing work it it started helping them they noticed that if they were going through opium withdrawals they could chew on the kratom leaves and they wouldn't go through those withdrawals um so the they saw that as interrupting the opium business so they cracked down on it is what i saw so was it do you think it was more of an issue of them with the opium withdrawals was it like basically stepping off of a harder withdrawal to something milder like you know uh, you know we're going to talk a little bit about the addictive nature of the addictive nature of kratom and what you know the um, withdrawal symptoms can be but it's got to be considered to be like something like opium yeah i mean well i i don't think any of us have ever had opium <laughs> withdrawals mm, or no. <laughs> synthetic or extracted or anything um but yeah i it well so it reacts to the mu opioid receptors in the brain and so that kind of freaks out u.s lawmakers and even like your you know average person who's never heard of kratom if you tell them that right away they're like oh it's an opiate no it triggers some opioid receptors the same way cheese and chocolate and cigarettes do um so but it by allowing it uh, those receptors to be triggered in a stronger sense the body doesn't crave the uh opium is how i understand it and i'm sure also the natural effects of kratom like the pain relieving and the euphoria go a long way psychologically to stop people's craving for those kind of drugs. But I know a lot of people that use Kratom strictly for pain relief. And it's a, an issue of like, you know, people that have chronic pain that have, you know, went from having Advil and, you know, Tylenol, which are not great for your liver, on a daily basis, find Kratom, and it's basically now what they use for pain relief. And it's changed a lot of their lives. Um, and, you know, if you have this this tea that you can drink that doesn't have the same really harsh effect, I mean, like, I don't think people that understand that from, from, for the most part, when you're using a painkiller, when you're using something like Advil or Tylenol on, you know, a sparse basis, it's not super terrible. But if you're using it on a regular basis, any painkiller, um, at least any pharmaceutical that I've ever heard of, is going to be rough on your body on a regular basis. Yeah. So um, it's very interesting. And uh, some of the stuff, uh, going back to the history, um, that I thought was also very interesting is that um, it was considered basically like the poor man's cannabis. Yeah. Like people that couldn't afford marijuana were using um, uh, you know, Kratom, and um, that was the way that, you know, they got, you know, released. They were working, a lot of these people were working in the fields, a lot of hard, um, you know, like long hours, and the, the Kratom was twofold for them. On the one hand, it gave them energy so they could keep working. On the other hand, it dulled the pain of their heavy labor. So right. it was it was twofold. And um, um, there's a, a section I thought was very interesting that I read was um, it was considered um, when you're looking to get married, it was considered um, a better trait to be you know a, a, a kratom chewer than it was to be a cannabis smoker because kratom chewer were hard workers. Ah, so you know that was uh, something I thought was, exactly <laughs> exactly something I thought was very interesting. I was like, oh, that's, that's that's an interesting point. But um, a lot of the people that were using kratom were just everyday 
laborers, everyday workers, you know, poor right, people. Right. They couldn't afford either, you know, the, the harder drugs or couldn't even afford, you know, marijuana. <laughs> so, right. it's so yeah, that's um, that's a good point, though, or a good distinction to think about is traditional kratom use, while I believe it has been brewed for quite some time into a tea uh, or even ground and just eaten, uh, it seemed to me like most of their traditional use was chewing leaves much mm. like south americans chewed coca leaves uh you know to get energy while doing work um it's a method that's pretty popular with a lot of psychoactive plants it's uh i believe it's called doing a quid you take the leaves and you kind of roll roll them together into like a little pouch so that they're tightly compact and then you chew on it and kind of like leave it in your mouth like dip probably okay. a little bit um, <laughs> i don't know i don't yeah, and I think that does produce a different effect than um, the way most Americans have probably tried it, like through either the ingestion method through liquid or powder or what we call toss and wash, where you throw powder in the back of your mouth and then drink it down like a BC powder, uh, which I quite frankly find really disgusting. Uh, <laughs> terrible yeah both the way it feels and i don't like the effects as much either yeah, um, they're very different so I, I yeah i believe that that quid method it used to be you're getting less of the alkaloids and mm -hmm. uh active ingredients in the plant and it provided a much more stimulating rather than sedative effect that can come with some of the brood teas it also lasts longer it's like slower release from what i've been told by the way it's constantly talking about um, but yeah, there, there seem to be a lot of connections or parallels rather, um, with that, with the, uh, Kratom becoming illegal in Thailand and what I know about cannabis becoming illegal in the U S like the racial scapegoating, um, and all of that and the, you know, business interest. Um, and there seems to me to be a lot of that going on today in the U.S. with the Kratom um, prohibition coming up. It seems to be, to me, heavily related to business interests, specifically pharmaceutical business in this case. Well, it seems as though, like, one of the um, things I thought was interesting was, like, I was thinking, why didn't they just... Because one of the ways they made money off of opium was they just taxed every part of the process. They taxed everything that involved making it, they taxed everything that involved selling it, exporting stuff, like, they, they taxed every part of, like, the opium business, so they were making a lot of money. And my first thought was, why didn't they just start taxing, you know, Kratom? And then you look at it from the standpoint that it was going everywhere. Like, it, you know, Kratom trees were growing just, like, wild, so there was not a lot of ways for them to, like, crack down and start, like, oh, we're going to regulate this when someone could just walk up to Little thousands of trees just growing everywhere and you know, pull some leaves. Right. So it was a lot harder to get through to that process of like regulating something that's so just, it's indigenous, it grows everywhere. So it's probably a little bit harder for them to like lock down on it. Yeah, I mean, there are certain parts of the United States that just have wild magic mushrooms growing everywhere. It's literally everywhere. You just, if you have a house that's near the forest, you probably have magic mushrooms in your backyard just because of how prevalent they are in the U.S. It's really hard to crack down on that kind of a drug. Oh yeah, I grew up in a, well, grew up, I went to high school in a rural town in Tennessee, and there were 
mushrooms everywhere. Like people would go out in high school and be like, oh, we're going shroom picking this weekend. Um, yeah, not very uncommon at all. Yeah. So that's a big thing though. They, they, people want to make uh, plants illegal um, <laughs> that wildly grow. It's very interesting. Um, I tend to be against that. But it's for your safety. Your safety, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess I, I'm really against the prohibition of substances in general. Um, now I don't think all substances are good by any means. Uh, and regulation, uh, for them can be good, like age restrictions and whatnot. Um, or even like, I think would be a good one would be like marketing restrictions. Um, so I despise heroin, um, but I think it shouldn't necessarily be criminalized and made illegal in that way. But I also don't think uh, people should be able to market their heroin, like, you know, with <laughs> advertisements or billboards. Um, but so I, I, I don't know. I, that's, I get kind of caught up in all of these prohibition arguments, um, whether it be Kratom or cannabis and stuff, because it, fundamentally I think people have the right to experiment with their chemical state and control their chemical state to a large degree. Um, and there seems, I don't know, that seems to be a thing that any power structure uh, has really been against, besides maybe like, you know, older tribal structures and whatnot, when those are valued or mystified rather in like shamanic experiences. Um, I don't know, what do, you, what do y'all think about that? When it comes to uh, the prohibition of things, um, do you think Kratom should be regulated uh, or open or completely illegal? I mean, my, my issue comes down to the fact that there's a lot of perfectly legal stuff that kills people on a regular basis. Like, the whole idea that they're doing this for, you know, public safety is laughable to me. Um, you know, Tylenol kills people. You know, like, things that you can go to the drugstore and buy over the counter kill people. So the idea that they're trying to somehow protect people from this nefarious drug that, like, what we have in the entire history, maybe 50 linked, possible linked deaths that were, like, involved in a bunch of other stuff. So, right. like, that is a drop in the bucket compared to, like, I keep saying that, like, Tylenol. <laughs> just look up how many people die of an over-the-counter pain-relieving drug. Yeah. That, you know, like, they have advertising for and they thought, like, it's candy. Yeah, maybe we should make Tylenol legal. Maybe we should. I don't know. I mean, I'm not for starting to lock down. And, and I, I think I, I kind of agree with you when it comes to, um, you know, this idea that, you know, we should be criminalizing all these things. I think that we should start treating people, you know, as you know, whoever it be drug addicts or whatever, start treating them as people and stop, you know, criminalizing the activities that they're participating in. Because for the most part, I think you have a lot better outcomes. It would save the state money and it would save, um, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these people from death. Yeah. Well, you know, what's funny is, uh, one of the reasons why Thailand, it is still illegal in Thailand. I thought it became legal, but it did not. It did not pass. They're still trying to push for it. Um, and the reason they're giving for trying to make it legal is to fight the methamphetamine problem that has grown in Thailand. Uh, but right now, there's a big push against it because 
apparently the people that tend to use it in Thailand um, are either older people who remember when it was legal, like 70 years ago, um, or Muslims. The Thailand has a big Muslim community, and they're mostly physical labor workers, um, and they tend to use kratom quite a bit, and that's used against the argument for legalizing it. It's shown to be like, it's like, oh, they, those other people there, the intruders, they're the ones using it, and it's a drug. It's very similar to the way we in the U.S. did with uh, when we made opium illegal. Not that opium's a good drug, um, or helpful to society, <laughs> but you know, it was like those dirty Chinese people in their opium dens. You know, it's um, a, yeah, very similar. Or the Mexicans with cannabis. We they used to refer oh, yeah. to the plant as cannabis in the Americas, and when they wanted to make it illegal, they started referring to it as marijuana to imply wow. this Mexican origin to it. Um, I don't know. It's very interesting how those types... I don't know... I don't know what the relationship is there. They just exploit racial tension and racism to make things illegal? Or is there more of a connection there that I'm not seeing? It's been used up in a lot of different, you know, um, a lot of different instances to basically find a scapegoat. Um, when you're trying to make something look bad, it's really easy to find something that people already have an ingrained fear with and then pin it on that group of people. Um, I was just looking at something recently that was talking about how um, one of the reasons why immigration has gotten so um, so like crazy in the United States, like the whole, you know, a lot of people coming and staying is because um, I think it's under the Reagan and Clinton administrations of Bush's that have followed, they started making immigration harder. So instead of people coming to this country working and then going back home, they figured it was easier to just stay here. So before, what we'd have is people coming over on visas, working their time, and then, you know, going back to their, their country, going back to Mexico. And then when the immigration started getting clamped down on, they figured it was easier to stay here. So instead of having like a steady flow of people coming in and out, we've just had people coming in and staying. And that has kind of like exacerbated the, the immigration issue. And, you know, so I think it's, it's a very interesting idea that, you know, just, oh, it's those people that we've kind of made it harder for them, and that we're going to blame them for the problems. Yeah. But we in the U.S. seem to have moved past racism to... No. No. <laughs> moved past racism as a means of getting rid of drugs. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen that in a while. Maybe I'm missing something, and there is that there... Um, you know, like, the mood towards uh, heroin addiction, which is blowing up in the U.S., uh, which is directly related to pharmaceutical opioid addiction, I believe. Um, yeah, it's like something like 75% of all heroin addicts now started off with using prescription painkillers, whether they were personally prescribed it or happened to steal them or just experiment with them without a proper prescription. Yeah. Uh, that's sad. Um, I, yeah, I've seen... There's still four times more prescription pain, uh, prescription opiate addicts than there are heroin addicts. But, four times. Yeah. But you'll think, you, you see this the attitude towards, um, just like uh, you were talking about earlier, Adam, that, um, you know, putting the blame on minorities. You've seen the shift of how we're looking at 
these drug issues, it's completely different now because they can't put it on a minority group. So now they're talking about, oh, we need to start, you know, like finding a different way to deal with these issues as right. opposed to just criminalizing it, which is what they used to do. When they could pin it on a minority group, it was usually like, okay, bad guys put them in jail, war on drugs. And now that it's like moving into suburbia, you know, the middle class areas are like, oh, no, we have a problem here. We've got to figure out a different way to fix this. We've got to stop criminalizing it. This is like, that's an interesting right. switch. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, heroin, I think it affects everyone, but a lot of the deaths you're seeing, a lot of the uh, disruption is coming from, yeah, middle class white families. Uh, uh, whereas, like, you know, in the 80s, they, the crack problem, they could pin on, you know, minorities. minorities. Inner, city, inner city minorities. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I wonder if there's a shift towards suburbia having a heroin problem comes down to during the 90s and early 2000s, pretty much every major prescription opiate that you think of was being prescribed as if they were just candy. Like you would, you could easily get Roxy's and Oxycontin and all of those because they were essentially just given out to anybody with any kind of a mild to major surgery that might experience pain, even if something like a Tylenol would have fixed it. And because of that, because those people that were having those procedures done tended to be middle and upper class white people who then got addicted to those kinds well, of drugs. Well, they could afford prescription at first. Well, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's exactly what happened to uh, a cousin of mine who got addicted to prescription painkillers when he was 16 or 17 in high school. Um, his football coach actually would sell them to him and, like, a bunch of other people on the football team. And then when he graduated high school, he ended up, like, working, trying to pay for all of these prescription drugs and just trying to get enough pills to sustain his habit reached the point where it's just unsustainable and then he switched over to heroin and then eventually he died of a heroin overdose. Right, yeah. So heroin's a lot cheaper than the synthetic opiates. Uh, exactly. Oxycontin and whatnot. Um, but heroin's a black market drug and <coughs> it's inconsistent. A lot of people think that when they hear someone overdose, they think, oh, well, they got like a bad batch of heroin or something. No. People almost always overdose when they get a pure or more pure batch of heroin than they're used to. So the dose that they normally do, they do it. It's not regulated. They don't know what's actually in it. They do it, and it's more pure. It's stronger heroin, and their heart stops or their respiration stops. It slows like breathing and whatnot, and that's when people die. Um, well, to be fair, though, a lot of prescription opiates have also been copied and taken and reworked. For instance, I believe it was in 2014, Oxycontin had changed its formula so that it was slow release and essentially was useless from an addict's perspective. And because of that, a bunch of Chinese drug factories drunk, jumped on top of the bandwagon and decided to just make Oxycontin that was just like they are with fentanyl now, where fentanyl is becoming one of the most dangerous drugs in the world next only to crocodile and that's even so speaking of that fentanyl is still more deadly uh, a deadly dose is anywhere between five to ten milligrams depending on your body weight from what i understand i, I could be off by that but still it's, it's 
people who accidentally overdose from fentanyl specifically tend to, again, get a stronger strain than normal. Or they don't even know they got it. It's yeah. put in something else. Oh, yeah. If and you then, shoot up fentanyl, my understanding is if you shoot up fentanyl, you're dead. Uh, like, essentially. You have, again, if it's, a, it's a very small dose, anywhere between one to three milligrams isn't most likely going to kill you, but if you were to inject anything over three and a half, you probably so, die. micrograms? Yeah. So, it's really interesting to see that, but to have that transition a little bit into the legality of it, it then comes down to a larger issue of Kratom being used as a way to help with addiction problems and also to help manage pain. If somebody wants to use Kratom to help manage their mild pain, go for it. More power to you. I believe that you can need to fight for your ability to use a natural plant to deal with your pain if you so choose. If you happen to like the prescription drugs you have and you haven't developed any kind of an addiction or you're not predisposed to any kind of an addiction, then more power to you, but the vast majority of people aren't like that. And then it transitions into the idea of Kratom being extremely valuable as an alternative to other weaning off of drugs. Because even getting off of Suboxone and, um, what's the other one I said to them? Methadone. Methadone. Both you still need to use for months. Yeah, now and then, yeah, you don't, you still crave them all the time. The only yeah. difference is Suboxone won't get you high, whereas Methadone will. Exactly. But you still crave the Suboxone. Oh, yeah. And then they slowly wean you off just enough that your withdrawals are enough that you could probably deal without even having your Suboxone after, I believe, depending on the person, it's anywhere between three months to a full year of being on Suboxone until you're quote-unquote cured of addiction. And even that varies from person to person. Yeah. So, I've had people in my family struggle with uh, painkiller and even heroin addiction. I dated a girl who started using opiates and became addicted to heroin during a relationship. In my larger uh, peer circle, people I've known for a while in the last year, I've known at least a dozen people that have overdosed on heroin. And so, yeah, I find it complete bullshit, uh, the war against Kratom. I have met so many people here in St. Pete um, that have told me they were addicted to either opiates or heroin for years and are living great lives now. Uh, the amount of recovery um, to live a functioning life is, it's, it's tremendous, the, the uh, percentage. Like, I mean, I don't know, I guess it's all anecdotal is what a lot of the naysayers, like uh, the fucks at the DEA, um, that's what they all say is like, ah, oh, you know, they were on The Doctors, um, that TV show, The Doctors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the DEA was on there versus three people who were like, this helped me save my life. I became an addict and I was selling my children's stuff. And then the DEA's over there like, yeah, well, you know, it may have helped you, but, uh, you know, that's just anecdotal evidence. That's bullshit. Um, I don't know. I, I think there's... Particularly speaking, everything they have is also anecdotal evidence because of the limited amount of scientific research done. Right, yeah, there's almost no research done, and they're trying... So, yeah, let's... All right, let's lay out what the fuck these DEA 
uh, what the prohibition and laws are going on against it. We had, let's talk about the DEA first, because I'm not going to lie, I, I really am the most. I really like this uh, political coffee shop Adam. Right <laughs> um, the DEA are trying to make it a Schedule 1, correct? Uh, they were. They well, they yeah, they were. They tried to. They tried to force it. Um, per, so yeah, is that, is that an emergency notice? scheduling? Yeah, emergency scheduling. Which uh, is what essentially happened was so back in the nineteen seventies when the DEA was essentially founded, Nixon pushed a an emergency ability for the DEA to emergency schedule a substance. It was designed so that it could emergency schedule any kind of synthetic drugs that would have been very, very difficult to track down and stop if they couldn't immediately emergency schedule it. But, technically speaking, that's not specified anywhere in the law. It's just they're allowed to emergency schedule any substance at any point. If they really wanted to, they can tomorrow just be like, we're going to emergency schedule caffeine. You have 30 days to get rid of all caffeine. If they really wanted to, seeing as Caffeine is technically the most used and addicted drug in the world. But they use that to essentially attack Kratom and undermine the state-by-state debates that were going on where you have some states and even some counties that would ban it and then you go five minutes north and it's totally fine. Sarasota is uh, a county that doesn't allow Kratom at all. and Tennessee has outright banned it, but then yeah. you have states like California, Washington, uh, Maine, Massachusetts, and I want to say Oregon that and Colorado that haven't really done much of anything. They don't really care. I also don't believe that it's that big. It's mostly in head shops in those states. Or used by people. Um, so when they... When they tried to do the emergency scheduling, all these people, they got a flood of complaints, like, way bigger than I expected. Um, And what I learned from that after watching a lot of those uh, Kratom testimonials, which I recommend everyone listening to this to go look at. um, We should post some of those on our uh, Facebook Yeah, Yeah, let's put some of those up. Um, It's a wide, wide range of people, a lot of veterans, a lot of nurses, a lot of school teachers. I saw police officers. We know police officers that use it. Um, you know, and these people were mostly getting it offline and doing it themselves. Had no idea there were places where you can get like buy a tea in a bar like atmosphere or um, you know things like that. The some of the acupuncture shops uh, or places um, around town. I've noticed it on their shelves. Um, so it's wider than people think. Um, they got so much, they had to cancel their emergency schedule. Yep. It's the first time ever, I believe, that they went back on an emergency schedule. Yeah, first time we beat the DEA. <laughs> Technically, Oxycontin did that. <laughs> but that wasn't us, so it doesn't count. Yeah, that wasn't us. That was rich people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh, you should also look up if you ever get the chance, I'll, I'll post a link to it. In the 1990s, the <laughs> company that patented Oxycontin paid doctors to say that Oxycontin was not addictive and that only point zero, I think it was 0.1 or 0.01% 
of all people who used Oxycontin in hospitals got got addicted to it. There's some news footage I've actually seen of that from the 90s where they're talking about it. And it seems like, if you're going back and watching it now, it seems like the most surreal, asinine stuff. Because you're like, well, what? How, how is anyone buying this? Obviously, Oxycontin is extremely addictive. Because they had numerous PhD doctors right. that would go on national television and say, no, they're wrong. And the DEA was like, okay. Yeah, so the DEA tried to make it a Schedule 1, which would mean there's very, very hard to do medical research on it. Um, Technically, it'd be impossible. Yeah, uh, so that would be like the same... That's where uh, cannabis, marijuana, is in LSD, uh, heroin. Um, but not cocaine. But not cocaine. Um, and I also don't believe meth is a schedule one. I think meth is a schedule two. I don't but know. But that, that actually kind of makes sense, though, because of Adderall. Adderall, the, Adderall takes from the same family of meth. meth. Wow. Because it is an amphetamine, so they yeah. technically couldn't schedule one it unless they wanted to make Adderall illegal because it's an amphetamine. That is interesting. So, yeah, so oh. they tried to make it a schedule one. We fought them. Uh, we have, we did a minor victory or a major victory, however you want to look at it. Um, it seems to be off the list. They technically can still schedule it, but they can't do it emergency style anymore. Uh, so... There's more opportunity to fight that, which we will, of course, if that happens. But then you also have, so that's the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. Then you also have the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, that wants to either ban it as harmful or regulate it. There's a big difference there. And then there's state FDAs and federal uh, FDAs, I believe, right? Yes. Right. So the federal... (laughs) They looked into it, and I believe they basically kind of just tabled it. Like, yeah, we'll get back to this later. They didn't want to make a decision. Um, but in Florida, there has been numerous attempts in the past few years to make it illegal, and all of them have uh, failed, but there is one right now, I believe. Is that? Uh, right now, Kristen Jacobs, through the third year in a row has proposed the same exact ban on Kratom as she had to reiterate three years in a row now that it has failed. I forget the name of the state senator who has the companion bill in the Senate. Um, but... What's the group sound? I'm not sure. I, I can't remember. I think it, so, yeah. It, I remember it, reading It probably that. is. But with Kristen Jacobs... She has notoriously been, not just in my opinion, but the opinion of many journalists, her people who also have happened to work with her, and many, many other people in Florida government trying to essentially make this her stepping stone into what appears to be either a higher state-level seat or using that as a way to piggyback into a federal seat to gain more recognition as a politician by saying, I helped ban a drug that was bad. And the interesting thing is, there was a controversy where in December, Kristen Jacobs essentially, and I'm not exaggerating here, compared 
the American Kratom Association, which I don't agree with all the things they do, but I also don't think that they're Hitler, which is what Kristen Jacobs <laughs> insinuated by saying, give me a second to pull up the exact quote of... I like the American Kratom Association. I think they do a lot of good work. I don't know. Maybe they do something that I don't agree with, but <laughs> I thought they'd been pretty cool. Um, I'm amazed the amount of organizing they did to help defeat the DEA. Um, that's quite amazing. Yeah. Give me one second. I'm voting this. Anything on that level is kind of impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jacob's exact quote was, They have a story, Jacob's told us Monday via phone. Just like Hitler believed if you tell a lie over and over again, it becomes the truth. And that bothered a lot of people and led to a lot of jokes of literally everything I don't like is Hitler. And it very much holds up because instead of critiquing anything the, the AKA has done or said or thought or put out, she just tried to discredit them by going, yeah, but Hitler. <laughs> and that's not really a good argument if that's your only argument. Specifically when you've tried the same thing for three consecutive years and have failed every single time. And some of it by small margins, other by large, but at this point, it seems like it's not even an issue of compassion for her. It seems to be more a a war of attrition. It's just her trying desperately to make a name for herself to the point where she is unable to think of any other way to boost her career. In fact, you guys talk for a second because I happened to find her Facebook and I happened to actually message her. And I never got a reply from her, but I do believe it is worth talking about if I can find it. Yes. When I had messaged her on Facebook, which she never even opened, which I feel insulted by, <laughs> is, aren't you supposed to be a representative of the state of Florida and yet you don't listen to people? Wait, pause. Yes. you got to start off with something positive, because they can see the first sentence or so. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what I had said was, Hi, Representative Jacobs. As a concerned citizen living in Florida, can you explain why you have elected to sponsor legislation on Prado? I am asking this to understand your perspective on this issue in a respectful way. I would appreciate the opportunity to further understand why you have made this a top priority in your career above tackling any other issues currently facing the people of Florida. And she never got back to me, which kind of made me mad. Not because she didn't get back to me, because I assumed she wouldn't, but I didn't message her and say, hey, fuck you. I was like, as a concerned citizen, why is this your main focus? Because from everything I've read involving the Kratom issue, she hasn't spoken directly as to why she's made this her goal as a politician locally. She's hinted that it's a, it's a matter of trying to prevent more deaths, even though, technically speaking, every doctor that has been asked about this has clarified and said, well, technically... 
when they did autopsies and toxicology reports, yeah, they found Kratom, but they always found something else. It wasn't that Kratom antagonized anything, or maybe it did when mixed with a cocktail of other drugs, but even in the state of Florida, there's three or four cases of quote-unquote Kratom-related deaths, but that in general in the U.S. there's been 15 cases of Kratom-related deaths, and let's assume that that is correct. Let's assume that those deaths are attributed directly to Kratom. Yeah. It's 88,000 people die from alcohol every year. I believe it's 88. And even more from smoking cigarettes, both of which have been legal for a very long time. Alcohol was actually already banned. That didn't work. And then it came back. And now it's a giant problem still. In my opinion, partially, as I touched on in the other video we did about kava, this obsession we have with alcohol being the only thing you can do to drink that makes your hanging out with friends way more fun. And... It's more of a marketing drive than anything else. Well, exactly. And yeah, it's celebrated. I think the, the harsh reality of the situation is since 1999, accidental overdoses have increased by four. There are 2.2 million prescription drug opiate addicts out there and over half a million heroin addicts that we're aware of. There could be way more that are hiding in suburbia that are totally functional heroin addicts. Statistically speaking, there has to be. And yet something that people are saying is helping them not do opiate drugs something that is keeping people away from harder prescription opiates that they might need for pain relief, we're trying to make a war out of. Unlike any other drug you could argue shouldn't be legalized or should be decriminalized, but you shouldn't be forced to go to rehab if you're caught doing them X amount of times, whatever your solution to the drug problem may be. I had a point in time where I drank Kratom every single day. I, I drank a double, two doubles, almost every single day for about three months. And then when I realized it was becoming a problem and it was denting my wallet a little bit, I tried to stop, and after three days, I had a headache pretty much every single day. I was groggy. I was angry. And as somebody who's also gone through caffeine withdrawal... That is the same thing I was going to say. Caffeine affects me the same way. It's nearly identical. The biggest difference was where I had the headache, where with caffeine it was mostly in the back of my head with Kratom, it was in the front, which is, I just believe, a matter of where the receptors are that are trying to crave and send a signal. Though I'm not 100% sure where the opiate receptors are. I believe they're towards the front. (laughs) But if that is what the average, or even the lower spectrum of Kratom withdrawals are, and from my experience speaking with people both online and in person about Kratom withdrawal, that seems to be about the average. Some people have it worse yeah, than others. I, uh, I, I had a similar situation. I drank Kratom every day for at least three months and then went a whole week without drinking a drop um, while I was on vacation. And the first two days I had a mild headache, mild lethargy, lethargy uh, 
I found caffeine withdrawals like even one day of caffeine withdrawals withdrawals to be way worse than that. Caffeine withdrawals <laughs> can be almost debilitating. Yeah, sometimes. I yeah, I, I feel way more addicted to caffeine than I do kratom, and I drink kratom. I would say at, on average five times a week. Um, yeah, and I will say that from a legal perspective, if Kristen Jacobs truly wants to make her career out of focusing on drug problems, she should actually completely reverse her stance on product. Not just because we happen to drink it, not just because we have friends who benefit from it, but from an objective standpoint, you can focus your career on legislation that has now failed two times, most likely a third from what every single one of the sources I personally know and discuss this with are saying, or you can take this admit that you were wrong about something and use Kratom as a way of creating legislation that would use Kratom in recovery situations. Naturally help people. That would help people and overall cut the funding of methadone clinics in Florida by a significant amount and also at the same time help them help those heroin addicts and opiate addicts in general stay away from alcohol, which can also help them lead them back to an opiate addiction because it's a depressant, and then they start to feel the mild forms of the depressant as a sedative heroin or opiate would feel, teasing them just enough through being drunk all the time to deal with their heroin addiction that they go back to opiates again. I, I have numerous friends who... They didn't stop doing opiates until they stopped drinking because they would just replace it. They would get drunk as hell. And then after a while, they would go, this isn't doing it for me. And then they'd call their, their other guy up who would sell to them again and they would get opiates. And then it was a problem again. Yeah. You know, I want to go even farther than that. And uh, I would like to see people using kratom and other herbs and plants like that as a first step, as, you know, if they pull their back um, at work or something, to not be taking those pharmaceutical pain pills and stuff and be drinking a kratom tea or even a kratom capsule, like the powder capsuled up and stuff. Um, I would like to see it regulated um, to the point where... There's some age restrictions, probably like 18, maybe 16, I don't know. Um, and I would like to see uh, standardization and safety practices put in because, you know, with anything that has black market, uh, there's, yeah, there's the risk of you don't know what exactly you're getting. People have gotten like Kratom pills at gas stations that have had other weird research chemicals like spice and bath salts and stuff in them. Um, and that's awful. Um, and, you know, so I want to, but yeah, so I want to see it normalized um, to a big degree. And I, cause I think it could help a lot of people. Uh, like I said, I drink Kratom quite a bit because it relieves <laughs> bodily aches. I work a physical labor job. You know, I'm a, I work at a grocery store. I'm constantly moving boxes, I'm breaking down pallets, I'm standing on my feet for eight hours a day on concrete, um, I'm doing a lot of customer experience, my, minds get, my mind gets tired, my body gets tired, and 
it helps me get through that day. Uh, it helps me fight my capitalist fatigue syndrome of having to work a job. Uh, even though I like my job, I'm not talking shit about it, but it brings you down a little bit, having to work a job. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people uh, drink Kratom and they don't even realize it. Um, it's because of those minor stresses uh, throughout the day that the pain relief, the energy, and the euphoria all combine to really fight against and make you feel a lot better. Uh, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to describe, but like it can really change your day around. Um, <laughs> it can make you be a lot nicer to some person. Uh, I don't know. That's my experience. To bounce back to the legality just for a moment again, for anybody who might be listening to this who doesn't drink Crowdown or might be on the fence about the idea, to lend some credibility to this. When the DEA was emergency scheduling Kratom, a bunch of senators got together and as a bipartisan, and not even bipartisan, a tripartisan effort, wrote a long letter urging the DEA not to go forward with it. On that list was Orrin G. Hatch, which is a Republican from Ohio, Mike Lee, another Republican from Ohio, um, Mark Kirk, which is a Republican from Illinois, Angus King, who is an independent from Maine, Michael F. Bennett, sorry, a Democrat from uh, Colorado. You have Tom Tillis, which is a Republican from North Carolina. You have Ron Waden, a Democrat from Oregon. Mark R. Warner, a Democrat from Virginia. And Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont. And if that doesn't lend any credibility to this not just being some hippy-dippy drug that's some kind of weird legal high, I, I don't know what might convince you to objectively think about how Kratom is from a legal perspective and what it could do to help. Because something to note is we're not talking about small-time mayors that happen to have a bunch of kava bars in their area, like the mayors from the Pinellas County area who collectively have eight cobble bar establishments that all bring them business and tourism and sell Kratom, but also the many, many head shops and other smaller businesses that tend to be on the more hippy-dippy side that also sell Kratom that's in their best interest for the local uh, economy to advocate for. We're talking about senators and representatives who, on every other day of the week, don't agree on jack shit. We're talking about Democrats, Republicans, left-leaning independents, and right-leaning independents, all saying, hey, this is fucked up, and we shouldn't do this, and we need to evaluate this. And that doesn't happen ever. Very rarely is there any kind of a literal, tri technically tri-partisan effort to go, hey, this is stupid, let's not do this. Because regardless of your politics, if you're a Republican, you're not going to want the Kratom bans to go through based on the fiscal conservative identity of let's let the market decide what the market's going to do and let small businesses thrive. And then from the liberal perspective, it's the idea of you can now allow there to be a better solution to a problem that 
the government can't physically put enough money into fix. If, if you haven't realized, if you have ever looked at the statistics of accidental overdoses, just in general with drugs, not even just opiate, not just opiate overdoses, our map has gotten as hot as certain volcanoes. And that's scary. And with something like Kratom, we have a way to, in some way, impact, not solve, but impact a problem that so many Americans deal with that it seems silly that we don't talk about it. Because 1% of Americans are addicted to opiates, and that's just opiates. We're not talking about all of the other drugs. We're not even talking about alcohol. We're not even talking about marijuana, weed, whatever. We're not even talking about any other commonplace drugs like Xanax abuse and lean abuse that's out there. Because that would be like three point something million people. Yeah. <laughs> it's, there's so many people out there that can benefit from, the best way to put it, a natural alternative to these drugs with just enough to get them through the pain of withdrawal that why go through the effort of potentially adding even more people to our prison population, which I will have you mind, is the majority of the world's prison population, spending even more money on essentially imprisoning these people when you can allow them to make a choice and really when you get down to it, statistically speaking, they are more likely to be killed by a coconut than they are to be killed even if we assume that Kratom actually is the leading cause in those 15, maybe 16 cases. Oh man, we gotta take care of those coconuts. I like coconuts. <laughs> All right, <laughs> I do too. We can, yeah. All right, do you, Kason, do you have any uh, closing remarks? Um, I mean, not entirely. I mean, honestly, I feel like if you are at all interested in Kratom or anything that's going on with Kratom, do your research. Um, we're going to put some information up on our page. But go, if you're in the St. Pete uh, Tampa area, go check out a Kava bar. Go talk to one of the, the owners of, you know, like, um, like Bula Cafe, Grassroots, uh, Low Tide, Muddy Waters. Um, Vision, Matt Hatters. Vision, Matt Hatters. Go to one of those places and just check it out. Asylum, Johnny Vapors. I mean, any of those places you can... (laughs) Angels. Angels. You can talk to any of the owners of those places and they all have like, they all have information, they're all knowledgeable about the products, they're all knowledgeable about Kratom, so you should go have a conversation with them. Go have a conversation with anyone that's like sitting there drinking the Kratom and see, you know, what their experience has been. Um, I, I don't really use Kratom that much, I've, I've probably had Kratom like a, a handful of times, um, but it, it was just, I, I want to stay up and it was energizing and it was, it was like coffee with less jitters for me, uh, and I love coffee. For context, we are going to be having an interview with Sean Simpson at the end of this podcast, who is the owner and manager, one of the managers of Low Tide Kava Bar in Gulfport, as well as an interview with Amanda, your Adam's wife, possibly. We'll come back. <laughs>
Matt, who is on the Matt Muhammad podcast. And just a friendly reminder that you are ten times more likely to die by coconut, which is 150 deaths per year, than to ever die from a crowding overdose, which is 15. Related. <laughs> yeah. Um, Alright, so I guess all I want to say is 80% of people work in the cus- that work in customer experience are under the influence of uh, some form of drug while they are working. Are you fucking kidding me? Nope. <laughs> That's 20%. That's Not insane. Not kidding. Uh, no, uh, they are, and Kratom would be a better one than the ones that, most of the ones that they're using. Uh, people have the right to control their own chemical states, and that's the most libertarian I'll ever get. But it's, <laughs> it's so true, we have a right to control our chemical states, and... There's a reason why certain chemicals are fought of, fought against uh, heavier, and I think that's because it changes your relationship to society and the way you think of authority structures. But that's probably something we'll get into much later. Um, I don't know. This is fun. I could talk about how much I hate the DEA <laughs> for a long time. Uh, we'll, wait, wait. Can you, can you say I hate the DEA? I hate the DEA. Uh, and now the CIA just heard that through all of our phones. And oh yeah, now they're watching. Now they're watching. Now they're watching. Um, uh, they were busy before. Yeah. They were. Hi, Steve. That's NSA Steve. I don't know if you guys know about that joke, but I have this joke that's been going on for a year, a tangent for a second of of NSA Steve who, who looks at my dick pics and makes sure they're okay. <laughs> all right. Uh. Thank y'all for joining us again on Kratom. This concludes our diptych of herbal remedies and libations. Join us for our next episode. We'll talk about capitalist realism and intersections with mental health and our political sphere. This is Across the Aisle. I'm Adam. I'm Zach. And I'm Casey.